As we dive into Acts chapter 27 today, we're on our final leg of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And if he hasn't already faced enough trials along the way, this leg of the journey is the most harrowing for Paul. Throughout the story, it seems as if Paul will never make it to Rome. In fact, it looks almost as if he will die in the process. From a human perspective, Paul's trip appeared doomed from the start, and at times it appeared that all hope was lost. However, from a divine perspective, we see how there was reason for courage and there was opportunities for trust. Those are our four points from our passage this morning. We're going to kind of look at things from a divine perspective and a human perspective today and see what the differences are between those. First thing I want to look at here is that as Paul began his journey, from a human perspective, it looked like his trip to Rome was doomed from the start. If you look at Acts chapter 27, we're going to read 13 verses to start with. You can join me in that. Chapter 27, starting in verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking, excuse me, and embarking in an Andromiatan ship, which was about to sail to the region along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus of Macedonia of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and uh, Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and he put us aboard it. And we had sailed slowly for a good many days when difficulty had arrived in Sinditis, or I'm sorry, Sindus. Since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete of Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the or for since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what it was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. When a moderate wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. I'm going to go ahead and have, you can go ahead and throw that map up there. I'll refer to it in a few minutes here. After meeting with Festus and Agrippa, they had agreed that Paul should be sent on to Italy. Remember, Paul had exercised his right as a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar, and so they decided to go ahead and to send him off to Italy. So they sent him on his way under the care of a Roman centurion named Julius, along with some other prisoners. He was accompanied by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, but also by another man named Aristarchus. Now Aristarchus is actually named a couple of other places in the scriptures. He's found here, he's found in Acts chapter 19, he's found in chapter 20, he's also found in Colossians and Philemon. He was a traveling companion, a very faithful traveling companion for Paul. 
Now the fastest way to Rome was actually by sea. A trip from Caesarea to Rome under normal circumstances would take generally about five weeks. If you go ahead and you look, use, we'll turn this off here. If you go ahead and look up here, what you're going to see is that Paul, in order to make it over to Rome, okay, normally the quickest route would be right through here, straight along here, staying close to shore, right up here. We're going to see in a minute that that what should have been a five-week trip, actually from this area here, Cilicia, which should have been a five-week trip, took them almost six months. And it took them almost 400 miles off course. So we'll see that in just, just a little minute. I'll leave that up there as we talk. It'll kind of give us an idea of what we're looking at. So the fastest way should have been basically just straight east, five weeks. Now a normal trip in that day, they didn't have passenger ships. It couldn't just hop on celebrity cruise lines or, you know, Royal. You literally had to just go find somebody who had a cargo ship and was headed in the general direction. And what you would do is you would basically say, well, i got to go east. <laughs> so they would, you would find a cargo ship and ask if you could join. You'd pay sometimes a small fee, sometimes it didn't, didn't cost you anything. But you would then just go east to the next port. And then at that port, you would find another ship that was heading in the same direction and do the same thing. And so oftentimes it would involve multiple ports and multiple ships. In some respects, it might be like getting a plane flight from here that you know somewhere else and there's no direct flight, and so you have these little stopovers or layovers. The difference is here you go online, you book it once, and they take care of everything. In Paul's day, it was sort of one small step at a time to the next port. And again, it was on a cargo ship. There weren't nice comfy beds. There weren't any buffets to, to feed you. If anything, you generally had to take your own food along with you. And so it was not an easy trip. And that's what Paul was ultimately facing here. And so they did. They found a ship, boarded it, and they were getting ready to head out. And we're going to see here in a minute that the trip was going to be anything but normal. Again, this five-week trip was going to turn into a six-month ordeal. The problem is that they started out in the fall, or at least late summer. That was leading to the time of year when it was most dangerous to travel by ship. The closer you got to winter, the worse it got. Not only temperatures, but with the wind, with the storms, with the sea. And we're going to see that as we go through this. The first problem they encountered is found in verse 4, and it says that the winds were not in their favor, so they had to travel north of Cyprus along the coast of Cilicia to be sheltered from the wind. They encountered a second problem, verse 7. It says that the trip took much longer than expected because they were traveling slowly. They sailed slowly for a good many days, it said, and with great difficulty. A lot of it was due to the winds. The third problem comes in verse 8. The winds would not permit them to go any further to the east, towards Achaia, towards Italy. So they had to decide to go south instead of east. So it would be much like us deciding that we wanted to go to Washington, D.C. from here. And instead of going east, we got to go south. We think the long way around. And so that's what they ended up having to do. All because the winds were contrary. It was slow going. Ships in those days were not made to be out in these kind of conditions. They had to kind of go along with wherever the wind was going to take them. They weren't quite as sophisticated as our big ships today that can sail in almost any conditions. The fourth problem we find is in verse 9. The journey had taken way longer than expected, and so at this point it's been approximately two to three months. It's kind of rapidly covered here. Luke does not spell it out, but if we look at what happened, 
This first part of this journey took about two to three months by the time we get into verse 9. Considerable time. It's probably two to three months. And now it was actually dangerous. Why? Because they were fully into fall, late fall, or winter. The shipping industry during Paul's day shut down at this time of year. It's just way too dangerous. Ships docked in port, sailors stayed where they were at, and they simply waited until the springtime would come. The problem is they're in the middle of things here. They've got some prisoners on board. They've got cargo to be delivered. It's taken much, much longer than it should have. And so now they're in a very dangerous time. It's probably at this point early September or maybe November. Somewhere in that window. It's hard to know for sure because Luke doesn't tell us. But it does say that the fast had been over. That refers to the Day of Atonement, which pushes us, we know, to at least sometime probably late September into October. So again, normally at this time of year, nobody was sailing. So that leads to the fifth problem that Paul encounters here, or the fifth problem that's described. Look down at verses 10 through 13 again. Paul began to admonish them because they had decided they were going to go ahead and try to continue the journey. So Paul says, verse 10, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our very lives. And so Paul warns the captain and probably the centurion here, the pilot of the ship, that this is not a good idea. Now, some people may wonder, you know, Paul's not a sailor. Why would Paul? I mean, these guys are professionals, right? You've got to remember, Paul was actually quite the traveler. In fact, we're told elsewhere that he actually had been in more than one shipwreck. He had spent some time floating at sea. Paul didn't want to see that repeated. He had good experience with the water. And so he warns them, this is not going to end well. Not just for the ship, the cargo, but we could actually die doing this. So when we look at this, the problem is not just that it's a bad time of year and they're trying to set out, but even the harbor that they were in was not a harbor that was prepared for wintering. The harbor faced the wrong direction. It would have taken the full brunt of the winds and they couldn't have ships stay in the harbor because of the damage that would be caused. I've gone sailing. I've been sailing at times. And it's interesting. When you're out there on the water, what wind can do, how quickly it can come up and how quickly it can change. But even getting back into port, in fact, I was out one time on Lake Michigan, Beautiful sunny day, no indication of storms, out on a $80,000 sailboat. And as we were out, we began to see the storms kick up. And it wasn't just a matter of getting back into port. It was a matter of getting into port and getting the boat out of the water and on the trailer because even because of the direction that that port faced, the winds and the storm coming in, that boat would have been constantly slammed against the docks. And even though you have bumpers and other things, it was not a good place for the boat to stay. And so that's partly what they were facing here. And so if we look back at the verses there, verse 11, the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what Paul was saying. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor in Crete, which actually faced southwest and northwest, so it was somewhat protected It was also, it doesn't say here, but we know from history and from archaeology, it was a much bigger port to go to Phoenix. So it was much more protected. And so here these, the captain of the ship and the pilot are thinking to themselves, okay, Paul's probably right with how dangerous it is, but at the same token, we can't stay here. 
So they decided they had to get out of port and they were going to go ahead and hit the water. They ignored Paul's warnings. It's hard to say who was exactly right there. Paul at this point is speaking from his own personal experience. I look at this and I think to myself, you know, from everybody's human perspective here, it kind of looked doomed from the start. You know, they started out, five-week trip, winds were not behaving, so they made some adjustments. Winds still didn't behave, so they made some more adjustments, and then they really got stuck, and so they had to head south instead of going east. Can you imagine two to three months of going through this? You're thinking, this is, we're just never going to make it. I have a friend of mine years ago, she was leave, flying from here to go out to um, someplace, I think out in, I think Washington, and she had to go through Chicago in the airport. So she made it from here to Chicago. She got on a plane in Chicago, and they went out on the tarmac, and it was before some of the new laws regarding how long a plane can sit on the tarmac with people on it. She was on the plane for 11 hours sitting out on the tarmac. They would not let them off the plane. They would not let them go back to the gate. Well, finally, after 11 hours... I don't remember if they returned to the gate and something, but they ended up taking off finally. They get 45 minutes up into the air. They had to turn around because now there was a problem with one of the engines. So they literally, 45 minutes up in the air, they turned around, they went back, they sat in the tar- or sat at the gate for I think another three hours while they were repairing the plane. They then took off again, only to make it partway up again, had the same issue, had to turn around, go back to the gate. And I remember she called me and she said, I don't think we're ever going to get to Washington. We might as well just stop and not go. You've got to wonder if that's how Paul felt. From a human perspective, it looked like everything was doomed from the start. I wonder sometimes, from a human perspective, things don't always look good for us. You ever have one of those situations where you're either trying to do something or you think God wants you to do something or you're planning to do something... And nothing seems to go right. It's almost as if something is standing in your way. It's easy when we face times like that, when they get difficult or they don't go the way the way that we plan. We might begin to fret a little bit. We might begin to wonder if God is really in control or if God really wants us to do that. And I have to remember, in this case, Jesus told Paul, you're going to go to Rome. That adds a whole new level to this because if I were Paul on that boat trying to go to Rome, I'd be thinking to myself, but Lord, you said I'm supposed to go to Rome, but it certainly doesn't look like I'm going to make it to Rome. All from a human perspective. And again, sometimes it can cause us to fret or to be a little dismayed or to think, again, maybe this just isn't going to work out. When we look at things from a human perspective and we allow that to then dictate how we view things, can lead to discouragement, wondering, questioning. Not just our own abilities sometimes, or our own plans or thoughts, but sometimes where God is in all of this. Have you ever been there? You can go ahead and admit it. No shame in it. I sometimes wonder what God's doing. I shared recently about my sister Jeannie. She's had a rough life, you know. She married a friend of mine from college. He ended up changing sides. It's a polite way to say it. Left her hurting financially, emotionally, Mentally, she's been a parochial school teacher and then a principal for years, barely making enough to pay bills, always struggling financially, but she did it because she loved doing it. She finally gets to a place where she gets a new job and better finances and better insurance and things are finally looking up. She's paying some bills off and then she gets diagnosed with cancer. Now wondering about the bills that are going to pile up. Just found out the other day she's going to have at least four months of chemotherapy, followed by four months, or um, a month of recovery, followed by probably a mastectomy, full mastectomy, maybe both sides. On top of that, followed up 
by radiation. Ten months. Followed up by five years to ten years on some type of drugs to block hormones. I wonder, what is God doing? Makes you fret when you look at things from a human perspective. She's got a great perspective on this, though. She's already seen God work in some pretty incredible ways. And I believe she's anticipating what he's going to do. Took her eyes off from a human perspective and put them on a divine spiritual perspective. And we're going to move that direction in our study this morning. And so here Paul is, the song we sang, the raging seas, the chasm that's too wide. From a human perspective, that's the way it looks sometimes. And in Paul's case, it looked like this journey was doomed from the very beginning. Let's move on into verses 14 through 20. From a human perspective, all hope actually seemed to be gone. Look at verse 14. But before very long, they rushed down, or um, I'm sorry, before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurokeo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island named Claudia. We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let it down or let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, and then all the hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So from a human perspective here, there's no hope of ever being saved. Almost immediately after setting sail, they were hit by a violent storm. The New American Standard reads, they rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurokeo. The Greek word that's used in this passage here is the same word that we get our word typhoon from. This word, Eurokeo, is actually our word for nor'easter. And so there's a couple of things that are being described here. Basically, this nor'easter wind that comes down, which in essence causes a typhoon, violent storm. You know, when we think, we've heard this term before, nor'easter, if you think about up near Washington, Oregon, um, you get these nor'easters. It's where these winds come down from the northeast and they cause all kinds of turbulence. The, it's usually cold, it's windy, it's brutal. There's some pretty nasty storms here. We see a tremendous amount of store or um, snow oftentimes from them. And these were fairly common in Paul's day at this time of year. They were very common in the Mediterranean Sea. And these were the most feared of all storms. They were brutal. Oftentimes ships would not survive if caught in them, which is why they parked their boats at this time of year. You never knew one of these things, when one of these things was going to occur. And so here they are, facing this nor'easter, says here they're being violently storm-tossed in verse 18. Again, ships were not designed to withstand this kind of stuff. If you look at verse 17 on day one, it says that they pulled the lifeboat up onto the deck of the ship, likely to keep her from slamming into the ship. They used cables to hold the ship together. There were four different methods of, of binding up ships, and it's not clear which one was used here. Sometimes they went down into the hull and they basically anchored ropes and pulled from inside to sort of tighten them up. Other times they would wrap them around the outside. Sometimes they would put them underneath the ship, pull them up. But whatever they were doing here, they were binding this ship, trying to hold it together. They let down the sea anchor, which was designed to slow their speed because they basically gave way to the wind, the text says. 
They literally just sort of said, we're just going to have to let the wind do what the wind's going to do. The safest thing sometimes is to tuck and roll. You know, it's just to go with it. Don't fight it. On day two, the storm was still raging, so they take another step and they start throwing all the cargo over the ship. This is basically the moneymaker. This is the stuff they were hauling. Remember, this is not a passenger ship. It's a cargo ship. So they throw all the cargo, all that money overboard. You have to imagine what they were thinking. If they're willing to take and throw all... I mean, that's their money. They don't deliver that. They don't get paid. So they throw that all overboard. On day three, continues to get worse. Now, the further light in the ship, they start throwing all the tackle over. That's the gear. That's all the stuff you need. You know, think about like a car. We don't typically do this today, but... You know, back then they would travel with the stuff they would need to repair. A mass brakes or a sail tears. They had all the stuff they needed to do the repairs because they couldn't just pull in to their dealership and get it fixed. Well, they start throwing that stuff over as well. They're now desperate. Now, Luke doesn't specifically state how long this storm lasted. He simply says they went many days. And notice it also says that it was dark. They couldn't see the sun, the scars. They couldn't tell if it was night or day. That's a pretty dark storm. Now this is important because the only way they knew to tell where they were was by the sun, moon, and stars. That's how they navigated. Can you imagine that? Being out in the middle of the ocean, blown off course, and you have no clue where you are, how long you're going to be there, where you're going to end up, because you don't have a way to navigate. Verse 20, it says, Because of that, from then on, all hope. And notice what it says then all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. That's Luke talking. We'd love to think, oh, they had this great faith, you know, the Apostle Paul and Luke, but Luke includes himself in that. All hope of our being saved was abandoned. It was, it was lost. What's our takeaway from this? That's the way it is when we face circumstances or challenges and only look at them from an earthly perspective. We not only sometimes feel that maybe... Whatever we're trying to do or accomplish is doomed from the start and isn't going to happen, but sometimes even within that, we don't think there's any hope when we face things beyond our control. So it's one thing to make plans and to try to do things and to think they're just not going to work out. I wonder what God's doing. It's a second thing to be in a situation where you're being blown around and tossed around, totally outside your control. And you're looking at things from a human perspective. It's easy to say there's no hope. All hope is gone. And we can imagine that as they're out here on these raging seas. Ships didn't survive this kind of stuff. They've done everything they can to lighten the ship and to slow the speed. And But just on Luke's words here alone, from that point on, we abandon all hope of being saved. We wonder how we're going to survive when we face stuff like that. Sometimes we lose hope, feel like giving up. Anybody ever been there before? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. What's interesting is that I think it's normal when we look at things from a human perspective. James kind of reminds us, however, that there's another perspective to this. The whole entire book of James is ultimately about dealing with trials, difficulties. And he begins his letter by saying, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, he's not a crazy man. The reason he says to consider it joy, he tells us in the next section, because you know, that word knowing there is a descriptive word, another way to translate it is because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James tries to help his readers recognize that you may be looking at the trials or the temptations that you are facing. 
you may get discouraged. You may get overwhelmed. But there's a different perspective, and this perspective is a divine one that says that God is going to use that trial to make you perfect and complete, to give you endurance. He's doing something spiritually. So when we look at things from a human perspective, we can lose hope. But if we look at them from a divine perspective, the result is quite the opposite. We begin to see what God might be doing through this circumstance, realizing that God is not asleep at the wheel. God has not abandoned us. There is no reason to abandon hope. There is if you only look at it from a human perspective. And I believe that at this particular point, Luke and others on that ship are looking at it from a human perspective. And that's okay. It doesn't say anything disparaging about them. Remember, they're not perfect. We've seen already in the book of Acts there were a couple of times where the Lord had to encourage Paul. The only reason he would have to encourage Paul and tell him to take courage was because Paul was probably likely struggling with having courage. And that's okay. It reveals to us Paul was human like the rest of us. What we're going to see next is the perspective begins to change. From a human perspective where it looks doomed, it looks like there's no hope, to now some other things. Look at verse 21 through 26. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. What's changed? Just a little while ago, Paul said, There's going to be loss of life if we do this. Now he's saying, Take courage. We may have lost the ship. But not any lives. For this very night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you and all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. From a divine perspective... There's actually reason for courage now. Paul twice calls on his shipmates to have courage. Verse 22, he says, keep up your courage. Verse 25, he says, keep up your courage again. Little had changed with their earthly circumstances. He's still on a boat, being driven by the wind. It is still pitch black out. They still have no clue where they're at. Nothing has changed in their circumstances except one thing. God spoke to them. And his perspective changes from an earthly perspective to a divine perspective. They were hundreds of miles off course at this point, too. I want you to look at something here. If you look at this picture, but where they are right now, and it'll kind of set our minds for us, this map actually shows them still kind of going further east. Most scholars believe that they didn't continue to get blown around this direction, that instead they were blown further south and ended up down in this region. I don't know how much it matters except from the perspective of they are really, really off course. Again, they set sail from over in this area, tried to go east. What's that? Oh, I'm sorry. I started trying to go west over to Italy. I keep saying east. I'm all screwed up. My brother, I did the same thing with my brother the other day. I said something about going east. And then he corrected me and I said, no, I'm always right. They're going east. <laughs> If you go east far enough, you finally come out west, right? No, going west. So they're trying to get here, but he, they have just now spent time getting blown around in pitch black out in this area down here. 
And one reason why many scholars believe they're closer down, down this area is we're going to see that they're afraid of hitting hidden reefs down in the area of Syrtis, which means they're probably close to shore down in this area. But, and they're out in the middle of nowhere at this point. Can you see why they might be a little discouraged? And yet Paul says, take courage, because the Lord had spoken to him. He doesn't have any idea at this point how God's going to get him out of this mess. Because God didn't reveal that, reveal that to him. Jesus simply said, you're going to Rome. That's still the plan. Nothing has changed with his circumstance or situation except the Lord has spoken to him. And Paul's perspective now changes. An angel of the Lord appears to him, tells him that the ship will be destroyed running aground on an island. Maybe that's not, you know, super encouraging. Because Paul's going to sp- spend some time in the water again. But he knows ultimately that God will deliver them. But not only that, you notice here, he reminds him why, which is that you're going to Caesar, Paul. I promised you that. That's still my purpose and my plan for you. It may not look like it. It may take you a little bit longer. You may not understand why I didn't just get you there in five weeks, why it's going to take you what we know to be six months probably. But you're still going. That's still my purpose. That's still my plan. But you notice something else that he says here? As it comes to the loss of life, or the, the lack of loss of life, he basically says in verse 24, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Isn't that an interesting phrase? He could have just simply said, there's no loss of life, but he says, God has granted you the lives of these sailors and those that are with you. What that suggests to me is that Paul likely had been praying because God answers prayers in this term, he's granted you this, is often used in reference to granting the things that we pray for. And so it's likely that Paul had been praying during this time, asking God to spare their lives. And so the Lord answers that and says, the Lord's granted you these lives. Not only that, but it puts Paul in this interesting perspective. And I believe that as we, as we continue on in our studies in the next few weeks, I think many of these men probably came to Christ. There's no direct statement about that, but it's interesting the way that they respond. In fact, when he gets to the island of Malta, that becomes pretty clear as well. And there may be some additional nuances when the Lord says he's granted you their lives. There may be some additional nuance there, meaning not just their physical lives, but possibly spiritual lives as well. It shouldn't shock us or surprise us if that's the case, because God uses circumstances for that very reason and that purpose. We've seen that throughout the book of Acts here. That God has used the suffering of his servants like Stephen, Paul, Barnabas, and Silas. He's used their suffering and their difficulties to lead people to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now this is partly speculative on my point, I admit that. But it's interesting. God has granted you the lives of these men. Maybe he just meant physically, but it's not unreasonable to think that Maybe spiritually in many respects, that was intended as well. What's the takeaway for us? Paul looks at this and he says, he believed God. Look at verse 25 again. Keep your courage, for I believe, I believe God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. You know, I've been studying, started studying for our next series, which is on theology. And um, some people think theology is boring, drab. Maybe it is. (laughs) Not really. Um, but I was studying the different aspects of God the Father, and one of them is his immutability. It means he doesn't change. But as part of that, what that means is that what God says he will do, he will do. He cannot lie. 
He does not change. And we see throughout the scriptures that when he says he's going to do something, he does exactly that. And so Paul, at this moment, is reflecting on God's immutability and says, I believe since God told me he would do this, I believe he's going to do it. When we think about this, to develop courage in times of trial, we need to change our perspective from a human one to a divine one and rest on God's unchanging nature and the fact that he says that he's got our best interests in mind. Which means what's happening is not for our harm. He hasn't abandoned us. He will do exactly what he said he will do. Romans tells us that he will work all things together for good. It's not some things. Not only those things that he can control. No. All things. So what matters is not our circumstances or our situation. Right? What matters is what God is doing with those circumstances and situations. The most important thing at this point for Paul was that God was taking him to Rome. That's all that mattered. How he got there, what he went through, whether it was difficult or not, whether he got blown off course, whether he spent five weeks or six weeks or six months, it didn't matter. All that mattered is God says, Paul, I'm taking you to Rome. And I'm going to get you there, maybe not in the most comfortable fashion. You might get a little wet, but I'm going to take you there. And oh, by the way, these men are going with you at least to Malta and on to Italy. We don't always know what God is doing. Sometimes it's as simple as what James says, that God's going to use that circumstance or situation simply for our benefit, to help us to be perfect and complete, because that's the goal. It may be only that. That may be all we understand about difficult circumstances or situations. At other times, though, it's more specific. In Paul's case, it was. God didn't just simply say, Paul, I'm going to use this to make you a stronger Christian. I'm going to do it because I want you to testify before Caesar. And sometimes it's the way with us, too, where God assigns for us to do something or moves us in a certain direction. He has something very specific in mind, and sometimes he lets us know what that is through whatever. And sometimes we'll know what that is. Sometimes we won't. But all that really matters is that from a divine perspective, God knows what he's doing. And there is opportunity for us at those times to have courage, to not be dismayed, not to fret. The last thing we see from our passage this morning is that from a divine perspective, there were opportunities to trust as well. Not just to be courageous, but to trust. After two weeks adrift at sea, we know it's two weeks because there are at least 14 days where they hadn't eaten, it says. But after two weeks at sea, there's this glimmer of hope. Look at verses 27 through 32. But when the 14th night came... As they were being driven both in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailor began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, and a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. I'll let you guys convert that in your head to feet. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern, that's the back of the boat, and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship, the ship's boat, and let it fall away. Now Luke says that they hadn't eaten basically for 14 days. It's probably likely because of seasickness and other things. Gives you an idea of the violence of this storm. We know that because there was food on the ship. They're going to eat in a minute. In fact, they had so much food, they were able to throw extra overboard. 
So we know that their lack of eating wasn't because there was no food. It probably just describes how sick these guys were. I don't know if any of you have ever been seasick before. I have. You don't want to eat. You really don't. And so it's likely that they were just not feeling very well. They're probably feeling pretty queasy at this point. But Paul encourages them to eat so that they wouldn't die of starvation, meaning you're going to survive, so now you need to eat. And so Paul encourages them to eat. Then he tells them that not a hair of their head ultimately is going to be shed. But notice, I've kind of jumped a little ahead there. You've got these four of these, these sailors who when they get the idea that land is coming up, they decide they're going to make a run for it. So they go to the back of the ship, pretending they're going to put out some more anchors and stuff, and start to lower the basically their lifeboat into the sea, and they're about ready to escape. Paul gets wind of this, and basically tells the centurion, don't let them do it. If they do it, you're all going to die. The implication is, there is we're going to survive, because God's told us that, but you're not. The reason, likely, is Paul's just being smart about this. These are the sailors. They need the sailors, because there's still a lot of stuff that's going to happen here as they're getting close to the shore. They need their expertise. And so, Paul basically tells them, don't do it. They go out on that lifeboat, they're going to die out there. The only way they're going to survive is if they stay here on the ship with us. And so, the centurion basically tells them, cut the ropes, and they do just that. They cut the ropes and they let the boat sail away into the sea. And you go on into verse 33 to 38. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them to take some food. He's telling them, go ahead and eat. Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. And not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread, and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and broke it, and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they hadn't eaten in 14 days, likely again probably because of seasickness and other things. Paul encouraged them to eat because he said you need it to survive because not a hair on your head is going to be taken. He took the bread, it says that he gave thanks in front of them and broke it. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Now we're told to give thanks in everything. Paul, I think we would argue, has reason to give thanks here. He's just been told by God that everything's going to be okay ultimately. The other men had to trust Paul in what he said. But it says that they were all encouraged. Imagine that for a second. These guys were most likely all Greeks, probably believed in Poseidon, the god of the ocean, who was not being very friendly at this point. They went to escape, and they were just told, don't do it, stay here on the ship. The last place they wanted to be. And yet, when Paul breaks bread, prays, gives thanks to the Lord, it says that they're encouraged as well. It's interesting. We also get a number, or get an idea of how many were there, 276 men. At this point in the story, you might have been thinking, it's not, I mean, there weren't a whole lot of men on it, but there were 276. This is a huge ship, a huge group of people. Notice what they do here as well. After they finish eating, they throw the food over, overboard. So lighten the ship, obviously. They're getting close to shore. They don't want to scrape the bottom of the boat along the hidden reefs and damage the ship. So they do what they needed to do, which is to get rid of the extra food. That's probably the last thing I'd be thinking of. If I've been hungry, finally get the chance to eat here. Still don't know how long I'm going to be out there. I think I'd want to keep that for my own safety, but no, they go ahead and they toss it overboard. We find out that as the sun came up, they finally arrived safely on land. Just as God had promised, though not necessarily how they might have wanted. Look at verses 39 through 44. When day came, they could not recognize the land. 
Remember, they had no clue where they were at. But they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship into it or onto it as best they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the forces of the waves. You can imagine that. They lodged this ship into this reef that they didn't see. And because of where the the direction the ship was facing, the waves are crashing into the back of the ship so violently that it's breaking up the back of the ship. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away to escape. The reason they would do that is because Roman guards were responsible for their prisoners. If they escaped, their lives were taken too. So these or these guards are like, we've got to kill all the prisoners because if we survive, the Romans are going to come back at us and wonder why we let them escape. So they decide they're going to kill all the prisoners. But the centurion, verse 43, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard and first, or first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought to land safely. The sun came up, they finally arrived safely on land, but maybe not the way that they had fought. What's our takeaway from this? I started this section by saying that divine perspective provides opportunities to trust the Lord. Did you catch the number of times in this passage that not just Paul and Luke, but the people on the ship with them had to actually trust the Lord? And I say it that way because Paul had told them that the Lord had spoken to him, and that the Lord had promised that they would be okay. The first is when Paul told them that they had to stay on the ship to be saved. So they cut away the lifeboat, decided to stay on the ship, just as Paul said. There's no element of trust there. Sure, they were commanded to by their centurion, but if they really wanted to take that boat, they could have. One centurion couldn't have prevented them from doing that. But they did, they cut away the boat, and they stayed there on the ship, placing their lives in what Paul had said. Stay on the ship, you'll be saved. The second is after they ate. Remember, they didn't have any idea how long they would be left on that ship. They knew they were getting close to land, but they could be blown off course at any moment. So they ate. They took the very thing that could sustain them on that ship for a period of time, threw it overboard. I think there's an element of trust there. The third is when they ran aground on the reef. They demonstrated trust when they jumped into the ocean and started swimming for land. Especially those who could not swim, having to hang on to planks and other things. I grew up swimming. Water doesn't frighten me. I would not have wanted to jump into this water. I've been out in the ocean. I've been out scuba diving in the ocean. At three foot swells, meaning three foot waves, it's not comfortable. It's hard to be in that water going up and down. And so could you imagine having to jump into the water? Not just to swim, but without being able to swim and to think I'm going to jump in and hang on to somebody or something and hopefully I'm going to be okay? All of these would have required trust. I'm not suggesting these men were all saved and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. But every one of these actions required that they trust at least the Apostle Paul. When Paul said, the Lord promised me, any time we're in a difficult circumstance or situation, when we look at it from a divine perspective, it gives us opportunity for trust. I'm going to trust the Lord in this. And that's exactly what we see with Paul and Luke and the rest here, every step of the way, that they trusted the Lord. I want you to turn to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 just briefly, and then we'll finish it up with this. One of my favorite passages is just a short Bible memory verse. 
Solomon wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And how do we do that? He says, leaning not on your own understanding. Don't look at it from a human perspective. Trust the Lord by not leaning on your own human perspective. Instead, he says, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Look at it from a divine perspective. Acknowledge Him. And what does it say? And He will make your paths straight. That's the element of trust. Get your eyes off your human stuff. Look at things from a divine perspective. And we see Paul do that here. We're going to see as he makes landfall in a place they don't know. They didn't intend to be there. But even there, God will do some incredible, amazing things. And it may have been that God took Paul off course to lead those on the island of Malta to Christ. That was his perspective. It wasn't Paul's initially, but it became Paul's and Luke's and maybe even the others as they changed their perspective from this human perspective that initially made things look like they were doomed, made things look like there was no hope to where... There was time for courage and an opportunity for trust.